theyeshiva.net. Many events happened to our forefathers, our patriarchs and our matriarchs, before the exodus of Egypt, before the giving of the Torah. We don't have a commemoration for those events. For example, do we commemorate the fact that Noach came out of the flood unscathed? He came out from the ark with his family. We don't commemorate that event. An important event. A great event, but it's not commemorated. Avram Avinu is on a battlefield against mighty kings, mighty empires. He defeats them. He triumphs. There's no commemoration of it. Light is saved from Sedaim in the merit of Avram Avinu. The whole story, the angel saving Light and, 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 his, and his two daughters. There's no commemoration of it. Sarah, our matriarch, is saved from Parai, Avimelech. They abduct her. She's saved. Rivka is saved from the king of Philistine. No commemoration. The birth of Yitzchak, supernatural. Sarah was infertile. We don't commemorate it. There's no special mitzvah or tribute to that. The same is true with the birth of Yaakov and Esav, the birth of Yosef, even though all of these were supernatural. Yosef and his brothers. Yosef remains alive. He's liberated from prison. He reconciles with his brothers. These are titanic events that shaped our earliest history. They molded the character, the psyche, the sensitivities, the value system of the Jewish people. But we don't commemorate them. We learn about them, we discuss them, we reflect on them, we meditate upon them, but there's no special mitzvah commemorating. Any of these events, all of the patriarchs and matriarchs, they went through so much. Yitzchak was brought up to the altar, right? He was almost slaughtered there for, uh, on the Akedah. At the last moment, God said, no, it's an event. There's even a date for the event in Pekid Rebelezer. But we don't commemorate any of these events, even though we tell the story. And so many other events. Yaakov meets Esav. Instead of Esav trying to kill him, they embrace each other. They cry. There's a moment of reconciliation. There's no commemoration of that event. One exception. And the exception is this story. Yaakov Avinu, in the middle of the night, wrestling with this person. Whoever this person is, the Torah doesn't say. Rashi says it was the guardian angel of Esav, Sarish al-Esav. There are other interpretations. Torah just says it was a man who wrestled with Yaakov. His sciatic nerve was dislodged, dislocated. And this event, we do commemorate. There is a mitzvah till this very day in Jewish law, one of the 630 mitzvahs that a Jew will not eat the Gid Hanosh, will not eat that part of the animal's hind leg. Why? What's the uniqueness of this event? So the Sefer HaChinuch, which is basically an encyclopedic list of all of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah, and a brief summary of the details of the mitzvah, and a brief explanation or insight, giving perspective, what he calls shoyrish ha-mitzvah, understanding the root of the mitzvah. Sefer HaChinuch, which was written in the Middle Ages, probably in the 11th or 12th century, we're not even sure who the author is, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, distributed with an author's name, although some suspect it was Rabbi Aaron Halevi, he presents the following interpretation. And he says, this was, not, this was not just an isolated story about Yaakov in the midst of a dark night engaged in a battle. This rather becomes a microcosm, a reflection of all of Jewish history. As he says, throughout Jewish history, this will happen again and again. In the middle of a dark night, Yaakov and his descendants will be attacked. They won't know why. What did they do to deserve this? And yet they will be attacked. As we say in the Haggadah on Pesach, in every generation, there are those whose hatred to the Jewish people, to the descendants of Yaakov, is so profound that they want to exterminate us. And Jews will sometimes face despair and feel that it's the end. There's no way out. Finally, the obituary for the Jewish people can be written, heaven forbid. And yet this story tells us it will not happen. 
Matzileinu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Matzileinu, Miyodam. Yaakov Avinu, Vayar, Kiloi, Yochaloi. Yes, sometimes there will be wounds, and deep wounds. Sometimes the Jewish people will emerge limping. Yaakov Avinu is affected in his thigh, which represents the region around the procreative organs of a person, which represents also his descendants, his offspring, that they will be affected throughout the generations. Jews are going to endure a lot of pain and a lot of anguish, but never ever will they be completely destroyed and defeated. They will emerge triumphant, and their narrative and their story will continue. It's a beautiful interpretation of the Sefer HaChinuch. We have a similar idea in the Ramban, Nachmanides, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, in his commentary on Chumash, the way he understands the symbolism of the story, and other commentaries as well. Which will explain why there's a mitzvah commemorating it, because it's really a reminder about the unique providence of God protecting the Jewish people, preserving the Jewish people throughout the generations, throughout millennia, through thick and thin, and even under circumstances that are difficult and excruciatingly painful, and what the Jews endured savage suffering. Nonetheless, this mitzvah reminds us that, as the prophet says in Malachi, Malachi, and he's the last prophet that we have in the 24 Svarim of the Tanakh, the last prophet is Malachi, and he has an expression, Ani Hashem shanisi Yaakov I, God, I'm immortal. And you, the children of Yaakov, you also will never die. Or as Moshe tells the Jews right before they go into the land of Israel, you who cleave to the living God are alive today, which symbolically also represents that as long as you are aligned with eternity and infinity, you are infinite and eternal. It's certainly a beautiful and moving interpretation that touches us on so many different levels. But... There's something strange here about this mitzvah. In simple words, the maskir should be like the nisker. We have an enormous amount of mitzvahs that are commemorating certain events. They pay tribute to anniversaries, to encounters, to experiences, to miraculous and challenging experiences. We fast on Tisha B'av because of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. We light Chanukah menorah on Chanukah because of the miracle of the menorah in the temple. We do a Seder on Passover on Pesach to celebrate the exodus of Egypt. We make Kiddush on Shabbos and we don't work on Shabbos to celebrate the miracle of creation and God resting on the seventh day. And we sit in a booth in a sukkah, a sukkah on Sukkot to commemorate when God took the Jews out of Egypt. He also protected them with shade, with the clouds of glory or with the or with the huts that the Jews had, the tents that they pitched and they lived there, according to the two opinions of why we celebrate Sukkot in Mesechah Sukkah Yudalif, Rabbi Elezer, Rabbi Akiva. There's a common denominator in all of these mitzvahs and all of these rituals, and that is, whenever we do a mitzvah, we do something to remember a certain event, a certain miracle, a certain experience, the maskir is aniskar. The reminder reflects that which we are reminding people of. In other words, we do something that will remind people of the miracle, of the experience, of the theme we want to convey. So for example, we want to remember the exodus of Egypt, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. We want to remember that we have been slaves. As we say in the said that we were slaves by Pharaoh in Egypt, and God emancipated and liberated us from this horrific oppression in Egyptian bondage. Granted, so what do we do? We behave... In certain ways, we engage in certain rituals, in certain mitzvahs, in certain behaviors that remind us and allow us to relive and experience to some degree that original 
extraordinary event in our history when we were liberated from slavery and emerged as a free nation under God. So, we drink four cups rabbinically, we drink four cups of wine, for example. We eat the matzah, the food that the Jews ate when they left Egypt. We uh, eat uh, uh, with hasebe, which means we recline to represent, to represent freedom and emancipation. We tell the story, that's the main mitzvah of the Seder. We tell the story of what happened. And, as our sages say, everything on this night, we do derech cheres. Kol Tonight, we all act as kings, as queens, as princesses, as emancipated people. Why? Because we're trying to invoke and trigger within our psyches, arouse within our psyches, this commemoration. Comes Shabbos. We want to remember the miracle of creation. Creation has a creator, as we discussed at length last week in the Siyaman Meseches Erevin, the two parts. Creation has a creator. Creator created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh day. So what do we do to remind ourselves of that truth? We tell the story. We make Kiddush and we discuss Shabbos. We don't work. We abstain from work. We engage in active rest and in passive rest. In other words, the maskir is doimalenyan aniskir. We do things to remind us of the theme which we want to be reminded of. Hanukkah. We're going to light candles. Why do we light candles every night? Why are we lighting candles? Oh, because in the menorah, they lit candles for eight nights. They only had oil for one night. But the oil was miraculously replenished. And they could have the menorah eight nights. So we light the menorah eight nights. And every night we tell the story and we remember that miracle. They also dedicated the temple and they lit the menorah. That was Hanukkah. So we say it. We do light the menorah. We also say al In our prayers, we tell the story of the miraculous victory of the few against the many, the few defeated the many, Rabbim Yad Miyatim, when the Hashmanayim defeated the Hellenist Syrian Greek Empire and put an end to the horrific persecutions, death sentences, and torture of the Jewish people, which was there to destroy the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion. Purim comes. What do we do on Purim? We read the Megillah. We tell the story. We want to remind people of what happened and celebrate. So we tell the story. We eat a meal. We feast. We drink. We party. We celebrate. Why? Say, why, what, your child asks, what's the celebrate? The answer is because we were saved in the days of Haman. The same is true, sukkahs. We'll sit in a sukkah. You get the point, right? This is true with every single mitzvah that is commemorating an event. Here, there's something unique. Yaakov Avinu's life was in danger. This man wanted to destroy him. He wanted to kill him. He wanted to defeat him. As the Chinuch says, it wasn't just him. He was the microcosm the paradigm of what would occur in every generation of Jewish history. There are always anti-Semites whose greatest objective and mission statement in life is the genocide of the Jewish people. Something about Jewish existence irks them to the core that they're ready to sacrifice often much else but to destroy the Jewish people, heaven forbid. Yaakov Avinu emerges alive and well. He's wounded, according to, it doesn't say clearly in the Chumash, but according to the interpretation of the sages, he was also healed afterwards. The son, Hashemesh, with the emergence of the son, Yaakov was healed. But Yaakov emerged, regardless, Yaakov emerged alive. He could continue his narrative. The Jewish people will emerge alive. Now, if you had to choose a way to celebrate this event, pay tribute and commemorate this phenomenal encounter that Yaakov Avinu had, which would mirror the story of his people, what would you do? What do you think you would do? Well, I don't know, but probably 
let's think about this, you would choose to commemorate it through some type of act, symbolic act, ritual, mitzvah, tradition, that will celebrate the survival of Yaakov Avinu and the survival of the Jewish people. Maybe it would be a feast in the old joke of the grandfather who tells his grandson, come, it's the holidays. He says, what happened? He says, it's always the same story. They tried to kill us. We won. Now let's go eat. The question is, what we eat? Do we eat latkes or do we eat hamantashen? Do we eat outside or do we eat matzah? Do we eat cheesecake or do we dip an apple in honey? But it's always, ultimately, let's go eat. So maybe we do that, a feast, something to celebrate, or, or another act that would commemorate the life and the salvation of Yaakov Avinu's life. That's not what we do. It's commemorated through a prohibition that we cannot eat a particular nerve in the hind leg of an animal, even though these details don't really reflect the story. When I'm eating an animal, I have to make sure to take out, to remove all these parts. Why? Because Yaakov Avinu was maimed in that particular part. But that, that's a detail in the story, a very important detail of the story, a very interesting detail of the story. It's how the story happened. He was wounded there. But we want to commemorate the fact that his life was saved and the fact that the Jewish people's existence is guaranteed for eternity. So why don't we do something to remind us of that truth? We're not doing it. We're just saying, don't eat a particular part of the animal. Now, if the person was just trying to wound him there and it didn't happen, okay. But that's not what happened. He wanted to kill him completely. That's the story. He couldn't kill him. And then he wounded this part. So I would think the focus of this commemoration should be the survival of Yaakov Avinu and pay tribute to that through something that will somehow remind us of that. But that's not what the Torah says. The focus is on this particular spot in the animal. And again, according to Rabbi Yehud, it's only the right thigh, not the left thigh. It's not birds, only mammals. It's only this particular part of the nerve, not on top, not on bottom, not even the fat, biblically, not even the fat. Why? Because that wasn't affected by Yaakov Avinu. It's completely focused on the actual event, what happened in Yaakov Avinu's hip, at the socket of the hip, in a particular location, a particular region, and that is what we commemorate, and the entire commemoration is restricted to that isolated region in an animal's hind leg, the right one or the left one, or the right one or both of them. Is this really the appropriate fitting way to commemorate such a major event? Would you say, for example, Purim? How should we commemorate Purim? I have an idea. Let's build, everybody should build Purim, a beam. Put up a beam. Plant a tree. You know why? Because Haman was hung on the gallows. His children were hung on the gallows. It's certainly part of the story. But if I just put up a beam, it's not really capturing the Purim story. So we tell the story of the Megillah. We have a meal of Purim. We drink. And everything else we do Purim. We don't just put up a beam. Here, we're saying, okay, there's an animal here. Do not eat this part. That's it. That's what you're doing. Don't eat this part. Why? To represent the miracle of Jewish history. To represent the eternity of the Jewish people. To represent that Yaakov Avinu's life was saved that moment. And yet the celebration is restricted and focused on this tiny little nerve. (laughs) On this tiny little tendon. On this tiny little detail. Let me just give an example to to, to explain what's, what's bothering me here today. You have a loved one, somebody who was saved, God forbid, they were on the Titanic, okay? Or another ship that went down. They were saved. They were saved from drowning. 
or somebody, God forbid, was, was attacked by a terrorist at the verge of death, and, and he or she was saved. But in the process, this person got a scratch in their leg, or got hurt in their leg, or a cut in their leg, whatever it may be. Now the family or the community wants to celebrate this tremendous event. So we, they convene. How are we going to celebrate it? So they said, I know what. From today, we will not eat the part in the animal's leg that reflects the place where this person, our loved one, got a cut. Isn't there something strange about that? <laughs> you want to celebrate that he's alive. So let's do something to remind us of how grateful we are for his life. Now, I know he got a scratch on his leg. I know it hurt him. I know he maybe got a cut or maybe a bone, God forbid, was broken. Whatever it is, and it was painful, and we have to deal with it. So we're going to make a celebration. We're going to commemorate it by how? That forever, this family is never going to eat a particular part of the leg of an animal. The part of the leg that looks like this part of the leg of the person in order to commemorate this event. There's something, there's something off about this, right? And yet that's what happens here. What is even more strange is, this didn't happen to an animal's sciatic nerve. It happened to Yaakov Avinu's sciatic nerve, sciatica. Now, they're not going to make a prohibition not to eat a person's sciatica because we don't eat human flesh. So the prohibition is animal flesh. But it didn't even happen to an animal. It's not like Yaakov's animal was wounded. Yaakov was wounded. So because Yaakov was wounded in his sciatic nerve, therefore, whenever I see an animal, that nerve that goes down the animal's hind leg, I'm not going to eat because Yaakov was wounded there. It seems like remote, far-fetched. Which is probably why there are commentators who give a different explanation. The Chizkuni, for example, and other commentators say, this was a very specific, this is a very specific mitzvah created for one specific reason. And that is, the children of Yaakov were guilty. They should have not left their old father alone. Children are supposed to take care of their father and accompany him. They were strong kids. They were powerful kids, they should have not left him alone, and therefore he would have not ended up in this difficult, challenging situation, in this mysterious battle with a man in the middle of the night. And because of that, to remind children forever that you have to respect Tati and Mami, and not leave Tati alone, therefore Jews cannot eat this part of the animal, even though they would like to. Why? It's almost like a reminder that there are consequences. You do not deserve to eat this part of the animal because you are somewhat guilty for what happened to your forefather Yaakov. Okay, so this whole mitzvah is really commemorated to focus on one particular aspect. Yes, your father was wounded in his sciatica. Sciatica was dislodged because of your neglect, because of your apathy. And therefore, you're not allowed to eat this. It's a very interesting explanation and interpretation. What is, of course, still difficult is that there seem to be other mistakes that were done in Genesis, even larger, and there's no mitzvah created for that. Only for this is there a mitzvah. But yet, according to the Sefer HaChinuch, that the whole thing doesn't have to do with the fact that they neglected him, it has to do with the concept of Jewish history, the eternity of Jewish history. Why are we focusing in on this aspect of the story, the dislodged sciatica? Some want to say, some commentators want to say, because Yaakov was healed. It says that in the morning when the sun started to shine, Rashi says, and our sages say, even though it's not explicit in the Torah, that he was actually healed from his wound. And that's why we don't eat this to commemorate that part of the miracle, that he was healed. But the first uh, first thing is it doesn't even say clearly in the Torah. It doesn't say in the Torah that he was healed. And it doesn't say in the Torah that's why we don't eat it. It says, You know why we don't eat it? 
because Naga because he was maimed. It's not a mitzvah because he was healed, it's a mitzvah because he was maimed. Especially if it's because he was healed, then why is it prohibited to eat? Then there should be a mitzvah, we should eat it. <laughs> Every year we should eat this to commemorate the miracle that happened there. The mitzvah is not to eat it, the mitzvah is that you're not allowed to eat it. I want to share with you what I found to be an extremely touching and moving and transformative insight. Really a life changer, I think. That I heard from my Rebbe. Erev Shavuos Tovshin Memvav, the night before Shavuos, 1986. It's exactly in this mitzvah. It's exactly in the details of how the Torah established this mitzvah that we really discover the meaning of how we view Jewish history and how we view the divine providence that orchestrates history and how we appreciate what it means that God says that even in the midst of the battles and the struggles that you will face, you will never, ever be defeated. And for this, we have to introduce a fascinating and very intriguing debate that travels, it pervades much of Jewish history between different schools of Jewish thought about the very famous concept of Hashgacha Pratis. Known as Hashgacha means providence, and Pratis means individual providence. How individual is God's providence? The fact that it's an axiom of Judaism, that the world was created by Hashem, by an intelligent designer, by a consciousness that transcends matter, space, and time, that's an axiom to Judaism. It's the opening of the Torah. God created heaven and earth. The fact that there was revelation, we have creation and we have revelation, that God communicated a blueprint for humanity and the Jewish people called the Torah to revolutionize the landscape of planet earth and make it a beautiful world to live up to its true potential, that's an axiom of Judaism that will be recorded in Parshish Yisri in the book of Exodus. The question that we're discussing and is discussed in so many works is, how individual is God's providence? So let's take, for example, the view of the Rambam. The Rambam, who is considered one of the greatest Jewish philosophers, thinkers, halachic authorities, leaders of Jewish history, lived in the 12th century, born in Spain, ultimately relocated to Egypt where he passed away and then is buried in Israel in Tiberias. The Rambam who passed away in 1204, 1205, December 1204, Chav The Rambam has a famous philosophical work called Meryn of the Guide to the Perplexed. And in the third section, I think chapter 17 or 18, that zip, zip code, the Rambam discusses divine providence. And he explains, Hashem's providence is for a species. But you can't say, he says, I don't think there's providence for every particular insect or bird or animal or plant or drop of water or blade of grass. That's not the case. There is a mechanism. God creates a mechanism of how the world works. And the world follows this extraordinary, extraordinary machine, a designed machine. But then the machine goes and things happen. Cookies crumble in different ways. So you're going to tell me that there is a leaf here and a mosquito here and an ant here and a dog here and a cat here and a deer here and a beer here and an elephant here and a hyena here and this providence on the fate and the destiny of each and every individual cub and each and every individual plant and each and every individual insect or reptile or fish or bird. That's not the case. They follow a mechanism which we call the laws of nature. And the laws of nature dictate the mechanisms of nature. Could God intervene if he wants? God could intervene if he wants. That is one perspective known as the perspective of the Rambam and other great Jewish thinkers and great Jewish philosophers over the ages. Furthermore, Maimonides writes that even when it comes to human beings, 
where there is divine providence, as the Tanakh explains so often, there's still a difference. He says, based on the, the elevated state and consciousness of the human being. Somebody whose consciousness is more elevated and more aligned with the divine core and the divine ideal, the providence is more focused and more individual. Rather, a person who's more remote, the providence is also more general. That's the view of the Rambam and other great giants. On the other side stands, most famously, the Baal Shem Tov. Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, who's known as the founder of the Hasidic movement, he was born centuries after Maimonides. He was born in Elul Chayelul, Tofnun Ches, 1698, passed away on Shavuos, Tofkuf Chof, 1760, known as Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. He was born at the border of Ukraine and Poland and ultimately settled in a very, today, a very famous little Ukrainian city called Mezhebuzh, where he lived and taught and really inspired the Jewish world. The Baal Shem Tov famously taught and did not stop teaching his students and disciples that Hashgacha Pratis, divine providence, extends not just to every human being, not just to every living organism, but literally to every detail, nook and cranny of all of existence. Even when you're dealing with, whether you're dealing with organic matter or inorganic matter, whether you're dealing with the animal kingdom or the human race, whether you're dealing with vegetation or produce, or you're dealing even with what we call doimim, like earth and water and mountains, etc., minerals, everything is orchestrated by the providence of the infinite presence of a loving God. In the famous story about one of the Balshemtiv students, the Balshemtiv taught that even when there is a storm, a wind, and a, a, a leaf falls off a tree as a result of the wind, it falls off a tree, it loses its connection to the tree. And what happens? It falls to the ground. We all see this constantly. And the wind comes and the leaf, Hepzachan Kaikalin in Yiddish, it starts rolling. And it ends up in a particular location. Is that providential? Is there meaning in that? Is there purpose in that? What do you want should happen if there's a wind? So then this is the natural consequence. But the Baal Shem Tov said, no. Even a leaf detached from the tree, the divine providence orchestrates where it should roll, how it should roll, what should be its destination. Rapinchas Karitz was one of the great students of the Baal Shem Tov, and he says that this teacher taught that even the way the way it's on the ground, the direction in which it's lying on the ground, this direction or that direction, the angle of the leaf is also by divine providence. We say in the morning in Tehillim, in, in Davening, we speak about We thank God for much of the natural phenomena. And we say there, Thank you also for Ruach Sa'ara, for storms, for windstorms, strong winds, which do God's will. So the commentators say, why here when it comes to a wind and a storm, a thunderstorm, a winter storm, does the psalmist emphasize that it's Oysadvara, it does his will. You could say it also by fire and by snow and by vapor and everything else that's described there, the sun and the moon and the galaxies. The answer is because when there's a strong wind, there's a lot of things that happen as a consequence, and you would naturally say, that's not by providence. It's just, you know, it's a domino effect. If there's a wind, so then, yeah, this is going to blow, that's going to blow. So you're going to say, maybe God wanted the wind to come, and even that could be a question, according to the first opinion. But even if yes, but the consequences of it? So that's why we say, Ruach Sa'ara Isidvara. It's following His word, it's following His energy. 
At least it's one interpretation. So as a result of this, one of the students of the Baal Shem Tev asked him, this, so the story goes, and said, Rebbe, this leaf, this leaf, the wind came, fell over the tree, it was rolling, rolling away, it ended up there. How could you believe there's meaning to that? The Baal Shem Tev said to him to lift up the leaf. And he saw a little worm. The Baal Shem Tev said this worm was being scorched by the heat. And divine providence provided this leaf to protect this worm. There's even a more explicit proof that was brought by the Alter Rebbe to the view of the Baal Shem Tev from the Gemara in Chulun, page 63. Chulun, Dav Samach, Gimel, Amar Aleph. The Gemara says something fascinating. Rabbi Yochanan ki havachazi shalach. When Rabbi Yochanan would see a bird known as the shalach. What's a shalach? A shalach is usually translated as an osprey bird. It's also called the sea hawk, the river hawk, the fish hawk. And it's called shalach because it... Uh, it throws itself, shalach means like mashlich, it throws itself into the water and fetches a fish and eats it. When Rabbi Yochanan would see a shalach, when he would see a seahawk, you know what he would say? He would quote a pasuk in Tehillim Lamed Vav, Mishpatecha Tahim Rabbah. Your justice reaches even into the great deep. What is Rabbi Yochanan saying? Come on. You're telling me that this has to do with God's justice? Yes. Rashi says, Your righteousness, your justice, extends to the great deep because God's justice invited or orchestrated that this shalach, this hawk, should come here and should judge and should pay retribution to the fish the one which was destined to die at this point should die. Now you'll say retribution, revenge, a fish that's destined to die. What is this supposed to mean? It's just the forces of nature going on. Come on. You know what happens in the jungles? You know what happens in the, in the forests, in the wilderness? I mean, this is it's just part of, of nature. That's not what Rabbi Eichanan saw. Mishpatecha tohim rabba. This particular fish now concluded its purpose for living on our planet. This particular hawk was brought here at this moment. So you'll say, it wasn't brought here. It's just part of the mechanisms of nature. But that's the concept of divine providence, that because the creator is infinite, and therefore infinite really means infinite, so therefore the part of the mechanism of nature is not just a general mechanism and the chips fall wherever they fall. No. Ultimately, every detail becomes part of that plan, of that meaning, of that purpose. It's interesting, I'm just in footnote, there's a, book, a sefer known as Derech Chaim, who was written by the Mittler Rebbe, the son of the Balatanya, and he writes that even my, the Rambam and the other sages agree to this, because this says in Gemara, it's just the argument is, if it's in a concealed fashion, or if it's in a revealed fashion, meaning if we can have access to it, if it's manifested within the realm of humanity, or it remains, the, the providence remains completely transcended and concealed, and there's no way of us relating to it and accessing it. That's not for this class, but I'm just mentioning that reconciliation that he tries to make between the different opinions. What is more, the Baal Shem Tev taught, not only is every event orchestrated by divine providence, every circumstance you face 
every encounter, every person you meet, every experience you have, and not just you, but even a hawk and a fish, Vashem Tev taught something even greater and deeper. And that is that this detail that is happening right now is essential and it's part and parcel of the cosmic purpose of creation. It's not just God also wants this detail. No. There is a oneness that defines all of reality because God is one and that oneness pervades all reality. So anything that happens to any person or any creature or any part of our planet and our universe is not just orchestrated and meaningful and purposeful. It's also an indispensable part of the entire system of creation and the entire purpose of existence. I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe a beautiful example for this. He said, and he gave an illustration for this teaching of the Baal Shem Tev, And I remember he started off the illustration. He said, Mezet is by Aguta Balabosta. You see this in the way that a good balabosta, which means a woman, a real housewife, the quintessential housewife, runs her home. It was fascinating. It was a fascinating example. Really a beautiful example. And he said, when you watch how a woman runs her home, it's not just she runs the house. Every detail in the house is accounted for. If something is in the drawer, I know in reality it doesn't always work out that way, you know, there's a lot of other considerations, and Baruch Hashem, there's children, and there's chaos, and there's a mess, and there's stress, and you have to run here, you have to run there. But he, he, he was talking, in the, you know, if you had all the time in the world, and all the serenity in the world, and all the energy in the world, and all the help in the world, further. He said, Aguta Balabasta, she knows where everything in the house is, and everything has its place. And there's nothing extra, and there's nothing missing. And it's organized. It's not there by random chaos because it ended up there. There's a hashgacha pratis. There's a providence of this woman on everything in the home. But then he said something else. A real balabasta, every part, everything that exists in the house is somehow seen as part of the whole. In other words, she doesn't see the house as many details. She sees the house as a harmonious whole entity. And every detail somehow fits in to that mosaic, to that jigsaw puzzle, to that tapestry. It's not, in this drawer we have screwdrivers, and in this drawer we have pens, and in this drawer we have pins, and in this drawer we have a hammer, and in this drawer we have spoons, and in this drawer we have knives, and in this drawer we have spices, and in this pantry we have other foods. And here we have towels, and here we have bathing suits, and here we have slippers. Somehow, the house is one. (laughs) And whatever is there is essential to the complete narrative, to the complete story of the house. When you observe an Eishas Chayil, you observe a real Balabasta, a woman of valor, you call her Keres Habayis, the real foundation of the home, she supervises and makes sure that all of the details that exist in the house, everything is in its proper space. There's no confusion, there's no chaos. And everything follows a particular pattern. And there is order and there's structure and there's organization. It's not just there randomly. In addition to that, all the details in the house are somehow part of the general mission statement and purpose and mahalach and journey of the home. And if something doesn't belong there, it's out. And if something is extra, it's out. Whatever is there, nothing belongs there. Nothing less than what you need and nothing more than what you need because she knows just like you don't want to be missing something that you need to have, extras also not good. If something is extra, it creates clutter, it creates a mess, it takes up mental space, it's a lack of serenity, you have to get rid of it. 
There's nothing missing for what we need in the home to be able to run a good, healthy, successful Yiddish home, but there's also nothing extra that doesn't serve its purpose. He says, this you can see in the mindset of a real balabastev. This is true. The way a woman runs her home, he says, certainly it's true. By the creator of the world. Number one, he's the ultimate balabasta. Number one, everything that happens is orchestrated in exact detail. Everything is orchestrated by Hashem's providence. And in addition to that, every detail is part of the big picture. It's not just a detail. I'm interested in it. It's part of the big picture. And the truth is, when you think about it, we can appreciate what the Baal Shem Tev is saying because what we call small is small only from our perspective. In other words, if you say that Hashem's providence is on the huge events of the world. Yeah. Is Hashem involved with the coronavirus? Well, that's pretty big. It affected the whole world. Yeah. Hashem inv- involved in, in world global events, yes. But let's remember that from the perspective of infinity, a tiny little event in your day that nobody else knows about and an event affecting our whole planet from the perspective of infinity is identical. In fact, if you'll take a picture of our planet from a few billion light years away, it will be smaller than a dot. They have done it. <laughs> You could look at a picture of our planet from a few billion light years away. It's barely seeable. It's a dot. So what makes it? That's only from outer space. From outer space, our whole planet is a little tiny dot. Smaller than a grain of sand. Smaller than a pea. Smaller than a pea. Not even like a tiny ball. A little, And that's just from outer space. Not from infinity. From outer space. From the perspective of infinity, it's not even a dot. <laughs> Completely inconsequential. So at what point do you say, this matters to God, this doesn't matter to God? That's why the Baal Shem Tov teaches that the biggest and the smallest, what some people call big and what some people call small, from Hashem's perspective, everything was orchestrated by His providence. If it's there, it's because it has to be there. It's part of the meaning. It is meaning in it. There's purpose in it. It's not a mistake. And not only that, it's essential to the cosmic symphony, to the cosmic purpose, to existence. So you'll say, okay, God wanted it, but it's not very significant. Well, if God wants it, it means it's not only significant, but it's significant to the Creator, and it's significant to the whole purpose of creation. This was the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. Today they give the example of the butterfly effect, right? The butterfly flaps its wings, and it can affect a tornado or a hurricane on the other side of the world. But the butterfly effect represents something. You look at something happening, it's very small, it seems inconsequential, but its effect at a later point and in a different place can be massive. In other words, what we call small and what we call big is extremely relative to our limited imagination understanding at that time. could be something as small as a butterfly flapping its wings, quite inconsequential, and yet the effect may be global. And if you have a hard time wrapping your brain around this, just look at the corona. A Chinaman goes to the marketplace in Wuhan, China to buy a bat. He comes home with the bat and he sneezes. Now if I were to ask you if that sneeze has any global significance or global ramifications, you would have looked at me as though I was virtually insane. It doesn't make sense. A man sneezed in Wuhan, China. It's just part of nature. There's certain, the body reacts to the dust particles that come into the nose and we sneeze. Or whatever the reason he sneezed. The whole world changed. 7.7 billion people a few months later were on lockdown. 7.7 billion people in every country in the world because a man in Wuhan, China sneezed or touched a doorknob. And the coronavirus traveled. 
What do you say about this? So the Baal Shem Tov is saying, it's not just every detail matters. Every detail is orchestrated. It's much deeper than that. It's every detail of a person's life and every detail in the entire planet. Every motion, every encounter, every experience, all the circumstances, all the occurrences. I may not even notice them. I may not even be aware of them. How much am I aware of? Barely aware of what's happening in my own little circle. But from the perspective of infinity, it's all part of a cosmic symphony. It's all part and parcel. It's indispensable to the purposefulness and the meaning of existence and creation. This was the teaching of the Bashan, one of his great teachings that infused life and vitality and positivity and optimism and joy in the hearts of millions of our brothers and sisters in his generation and the subsequent generations. And we see this with Rabbi Eichner. Rabbi Eichner comes and he's looking at nature. He's watching the scene of nature. The hawk is eating. It's interesting to watch, no question. He doesn't just see nature. He sees divine providence and detailed providence, specific providence. The Gemara continues that he saw an ant. And when he saw an ant, he articulated another Pasuk. He was not detached from the world. It was all part of a part of a composition, a unified composition. Now we'll understand the secret of Gid Hanasha, of the prohibition against eating the sciatica nerve of the animal. That's exactly what we're trying to commemorate. Of course, we could make a big meal, or tell a story, or do something else to commemorate the fact that Yaakov Avinu was saved from death, and that the Jewish people will live on for eternity despite the challenges and adversity. Am Yisrael chai v'kayim, like David Mishmel Chisol chai v'kayim. Am Yisrael chai, ani Hashem lo'yishin Yisrael b'nei Yaakov lo'yichilisim. What the mitzvah of Gid is celebrating and conveying is something even profounder. And that is, it's not just the Jewish people will be saved. It's not just God is ultimately in charge of history and God will look will supervise the fate of the Jewish people or even the fate of every individual. It's that every single detail that happens to you in your life, every detail that happens to Yaakov Avinu in his life and to each one of his descendants and essentially to every human being and to every creature throughout all of history is orchestrated by the divine, is supervised by Hashem, is willed by Hashem. He created the situation. It's all with His supervision and His providence and His infinite love. So when we want to commemorate this event, we don't talk about some cosmic celebration, some national celebration. That's other celebrations. Here we talk about a nerve, a single nerve. Not the fat on the nerve, not the upper part of the nerve, not the lower part of the nerve. One particular nerve in a thigh. That's what we talk about. That's the mitzvah. Why? That's the story. The guy wanted to kill him. He couldn't kill him. He named him somewhere. The scratch on the foot, that became the story. That became the story. And that becomes the story throughout history. A little, every aspect of my life. The people I meet. The circumstances I face. The mail I get. The emails I get. My financial, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual story, day in, day out, from the moment of birth, all the way through a person's life. And every aspect that I see in the world, it's all 
essential to the cosmic divine symphony, which is why the Baal Shem Tov taught something else. That everything that you see and hear in life is a lesson for you in your personal growth. I'm looking out the window, and I see something happening outside my window. I'm walking in the street, and I'm watching a bird flying into her nest. What lesson is there? This is nature. You happen to be there. No, you haven't happened to be there. Once you understand Ashgacha Pratis, the second teaching is a consequence of the first. You don't happen to be there. You were supposed to be here. This is part of your growth. It's part of your journey. I walk into the store and I met somebody. I walk into the store and I saw somebody. I'm dealing with something in my life. Something comes up. I see something or I hear something. Something my spouse tells me, my brother tells me, my mother tells me, my sister tells me, a stranger tells me, a telephone call, an email, a WhatsApp call. And it triggers me. Oh, why did this have to happen today? What do you mean, why? This is this was exactly supposed to happen today. This is an opportunity for you to grow. It's an opportunity for you to flex your spiritual and psychological muscles. It's an opportunity for you to learn from this moment and ask, what is the purpose here? And it's not just, well, it's happening anyway. You just happen to be a bystander. From the Balshamtu's perspective, there's no bystander in history. There are only players. You know, a game, there's the perspective spectator, the fan, and the player. There's there's no such a thing as a fan. If you're standing here, you're a player. You're not just happen to be here because there's action going on, there's a chasen going on, a mitzvah going on, and you were invited and you had to go because it's your wife's friend, and if you don't go, they won't talk to you, so therefore you have to go. You're living in a restricted consciousness. Get out of that. Tune into the symphony. (laughs) Tune into the magic. There's purpose, there's meaning. You gotta be there. You're there because you have to be here. There's something for you to learn. There's something for you to grow. And it's not just for you. It affects the whole world. It affects the whole cosmos. It affects all of history. It affects all of the worlds. It affects Hashem Himself. So Yaakov is maimed in one particular part of his body. His sciatic nerve is dislodged, dislocated. His life is saved. But something happened in that space. That's what we're going to focus on. There's going to be a mitzvah that for thousands of years, when we eat an animal, we don't need that part of the animal because something happened to Yaakov Avinu thousands of years ago. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's that to do? My animal, what does it have to do with Yaakov Avinu's hip? Excuse me, what does... I have an animal. I have a sheep or a goat or a cow and it has a hip socket. What in the world does that have to do with Yaakov Avinu? What in the world? Everything is connected. The Zoyar says, Estakel Baraisa Baralma. Hashem looked into the Torah and created the world. It says in Medrash, the world was the, the world was created by Torah, which is the blueprint. If something exists in Torah, it exists in the world. If something exists in the world, it exists in Torah, because everything in the house was there in the blueprint. And after the, the, the creation, the creator looks in the blueprint in order to create the helm. So there's an interconnectedness between Torah and the universe. And everybody in the world is connected. Everything in the world is connected. Yaakov's hip is not just Yaakov's hip. It's reflected in every other hip in the universe. We are all interconnected. We all mirror each other. We all reflect each other. Rabbi Yochanan sees a hawk. He's not just looking at a hawk. He sees something in himself too. He sees something in the whole world. He sees something in Hashem. He sees the interconnectedness of the entire planet. The same is true when he sees an ant. I'm not only looking at a tree. I'm looking at myself also. The tree is reflected in me and I am reflected in the tree. And it's the human being who brings it all together, who reveals the unified divine consciousness of the universe. So the hip of an animal is not just the hip of an animal. It's ultimately connected to the hip of Yaakov, to the hip of a human being, which is connected to a hip the way it exists in Torah. 
Because Torah is the blueprint of the universe. So by not eating the hip of the animal, what am I saying? I'm commemorating what happened to the hip, to the sciatica of Yaakov Avinu, to demonstrate. Number one, the hashgacha pratis in the life of every single person, and every single creature, and every single Jew, and every single descendant of Yaakov Avinu. That the journeys of your life are meaningful not only in the general pattern and the big dramatic stories that happen to you, but even in the smallest tiny details of your life. Everything adds up and everything accumulates and everything is part of that story. And that the whole world is interconnected so that the gid of the animal somehow is reflective of the gid, of the sinew, of the tendon, of the nerve of Yaakov Avinu. I take a cup of water, I make a blessing. What does Shakal Nebedvari? Blessed are you, God. Everything came into existence through your word. Everything. I'm talking about a cup of water. This is a cup of coffee, actually. I took a coffee bean, grinded the coffee bean, my machine did it. Filled it up in a cup with hot water, put in a little milk, or some of you put in sugar, or some of you put in almond milk, or some of you drink black coffee, the Puritans. Wonderful. What do I say? Shahakal Nebedvari. Everything came into existence through divine energy. Who's talking about everything? We're talking about a coffee bean and a cup of water, for heaven's sake. No, we're not talking about a coffee bean only. Of course we're talking about a coffee bean. But a coffee bean is part of shahakol niyabidvare. And when a little child takes a cup of water and makes a brach, shahakol niyabidvare, he or she just changed the world. They revealed in the whole world, shahakol, shahakol means everything, shahakol. Everything, Nia, came into existence bidvare, through his word, through his energy. They just revealed divine energy in the entire planet, in the entire cosmos. Of course, beginning with this cup of water. You'll say, but you're drinking a cup of water. Say, God created water. That's nice. No, we don't say God created water. <laughs> say, shahakal Nia bidvare. Because this drop of water is part of the symphony of creation. And when I make a bracha on this water, the whole world now became sanctified. The whole world became sublimated. There was a divine consciousness that was revealed in the entire universe. Shahakal niyabidvare. I drink a cup of coffee and I make a blessing and the whole world starts to sing. The whole world is now attuned to the symphony. The Pasuk says, Hariul Hashem Kalaritz. Let the whole earth sing to God. And the Baal Shem Tov said, Hariul Hashem Kalaritz is the acronym Halacha. Hariul Hashem Kalaritz. Hey, Lamed Chafei Halacha. Why? All of Halacha is the recognition of how the world is attuned with the divine symphony and that we live in a way that allows the world to become aligned with the divine symphony that wants to vibrate through the chords of our planet. That's what all of halacha does. That's why halacha discusses how to tie shoelaces, and how to get dressed, and even how to go to the bathroom, and how to engage in private aspects of a person's life, and what to eat, and what not to eat. Halacha discusses details of a person's life, mix out, let me live, laz leben. Hariu Hashem kalaritz means halacha wants us and wants to sensitize us allow our antennas to appreciate the fact that every act, every word, every thought, every action, every encounter, every circumstance is not just a mistake, it's not random. There is infinite divine opportunity, potential meaning and purpose. We are here for a reason. I am here in this space and in this time my soul was sent down. The Baal once said, a Jew ends up somewhere, you get lost. You think, I got lost, I made a mistake. He says, no, there's something there that I have to fix. There's something there I have to sublimate. 
He said, maybe thousands of years, this place was waiting that you should walk there and reveal God's oneness right there. Maybe by making a bracha, by saying a peric tehillim, by doing a mitzvah there, by doing somebody a favor there. Never, never take anything in your life for granted and never see any part of your life as insignificant, as inconsequential. And never allow trauma and victimhood to dominate you because it was a journey you were sent into with the divine resources in order to be able to transform it. And of course, this means what is the most important moment in your life? And the answer is now. And who is the most important person you'll ever meet in your life? And the answer is the person you have met right now. And what's the most important experience in your life? The experience you're having right now. Because if it's Bahashgacha Pratis, if it's by divine providence, it means that God orchestrated this moment. It means that infinity is here in the present moment, in the present space, in the present experience, in the present feeling, in this present encounter, in the present relationship. This is where it's at. Don't run. Embrace it. Celebrate it. Squeeze out all the juice that is there. Suck the marrow out of life. Carpe diem. Seize the moment. It also allows us to experience a simcha sachayim, a joy in life. The understanding that every day is purposeful and every night is purposeful. And even when I'm in a bad mood, and even when I'm going through something, and even when I'm confused and I'm facing uncertainty, this is part of the Hashanah brothers. Don't be afraid. There is meaning here. There's purpose here. Don't fall apart. Don't surrender to mediocrity. Don't get into a depression. This experience, these vicissitudes that you're going through, these fluctuations, even these difficulties, I don't know what to do. What should I do with my marriage? What should I do with my children? What should I do with myself? What should I do with my job? What should I do with my home? What should I do with my psyche? What should I do with my mental stress? What should I do with my psychiatrist? What should I do with my real- realtor? What should I do with my vocation? What should I do with whatever? Name it. X, Y, Z. What should I do with Corona? What should I do with Joe Biden? What should I do with Donald J. Trump? What should I do? The questions themselves are also Hashgach the situations themselves are also part of the divine providence. The doubts themselves are also part of my journey. These are things that were set up here, right now, right here, right for me. And my involvement in them is not just coincidental because I happen to be living in this house or in this city or in this situation. So therefore, I am by force involved in it. No, the situation was orchestrated by the creator of the world who conceived you in love and orchestrates every single aspect of your life and wants you to be a full partner with him in mending the world and healing the world and bringing redemption to the world. And therefore, no, every moment has infinite meaning, infinite purpose, and therefore warrants infinite, deep joy and purposefulness and positivity. I'll conclude with a, for me, it was a life-changing story and lesson. Then we'll take some questions. I was invited for a Shabbaton a number of years ago. It was a big Shabbaton. It was planned almost a year in advance. And I booked it. I put it into the calendar, whatever we had then. It was before uh, before uh, the present calendars and the phones. And I look, was looking forward to it. In fact, it was also part of my financial planning because there were certain sh- weekends I would go away, certain weekends I wouldn't go away. So I had this in the calendar. I knew I could rely on it as a source of revenue and I would go away then. I even arranged, we arranged for my children, who were younger, to have babysitters, so I can go with my wife. 
It was a winter Shabbos, so it was a very short Friday. We had to travel somewhere a few hours away, not very far. I was packed up. We were ready to go. I get a call from one of the organizers. She's devastated. What happened? It was canceled. Canceled. I said, you're planning this for a year. It was canceled. I am sorry. I have no words. It's horrible. What happened? Politics. What type of politics today? You have a whole year to have, be political. What's upside? Somebody found out where we're going and there was an issue there, a familial issue. I got some complicated story. Not a nice story. And, uh, you know, these types of petty human stories. And they canceled the Shabbaton. The person in charge said, you can't have it, it's over. But you have all these people going and their reservations and they planned for it. It's canceled. You know, sometimes when you're, when there's a lot of anger, people don't think straight. I said, yeah, but it's all the people who were invited. Forget about me, all the people who were invited. You're right. You're also canceled. I said, but I was relying on this. And we didn't make Shabbos. We, the kids are away. They were in another city. I mean, I have nothing to tell you. I am embarrassed. What am I supposed to say? Well, frankly, I was upset. Very upset. I, got, I got off the phone. I told my wife. I was very, very upset. I was upset on many levels. We also needed a place, uh, it was right, it was close to Shabbos. I didn't want my wife to now start cooking. So, we invited ourselves to a friend <coughs> for the meal. And Shabbos day, I think, you know, we decided we'll eat on our own. We'll get some, uh, some food from the store. But Friday night, we invited ourselves to a friend in the neighborhood. Okay. I was quite upset. I remember walking with my wife home or to the house there and, you know, saying how it's just unacceptable. They could have canceled a week ago. A month ago, the politics wasn't created today. We came home from the meal. It was a long meal. I was having a good, was having good conversation. And uh, we came home. We lived in an apartment building. And uh, we stayed up a little bit. And then my wife went to retire. And I was sitting on the couch in the dining room. I was learning I had a safer. I think it was actually Gemara Masech Psachem, probably, which I was teaching in Yeshiva. I was learning Gemara for a long time. I fell asleep on the couch, you know, as is the custom of some people Friday night. Of course, with a few books on my chest. Three o'clock in the morning, I woke up. And now I'm a pretty good sleeper. I don't have a problem sleeping, Baruch Hashem. I'm usually exhausted when I get into bed and I fall asleep within a few seconds or minutes. And I sleep through the night, usually. I woke up at 3 in the morning. I was not sleeping for a long time because I fell asleep pretty late. And I was restless. Something is wrong. Now, I'm not, I'm not a very superstitious guy. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a person filled with intuitions of what's happening I'm not a dreamer. I don't have dreams of what's happening next month, next week. I'm, I'm just, I'm none of these. <laughs> I'm a regular human being, maybe. Try to be. I, I walk into the bedroom. Everything is fine. My wife is sound asleep. I go into the kitchen. I go, something is bothering me. So I just go back to sleep. I can't go back to sleep, but I'm tired. I didn't sleep, uh, I didn't sleep much. Why am I not sleeping? I don't know. Did something happen? No. Am I in pain? No, I'm feeling fine. I'm not sick. Baruch Hashem. 
I had an office in this apartment building. I had an office on the fourth floor. I rented another another uh, apartment that I used for an office. And that's where I would work. I lived downstairs and I had an office on the fourth floor, a little office. Over there I had lights on and I had more books. So I decided, listen, I can't go to sleep and I have nothing to do. And most of my books were up there because my apartment on the first floor was very small. So I said, you know what? I wanted to read something. I'll go up to the fourth floor and get a book. I'll read. What am I supposed to do? I can't sleep. And I didn't know why I can't sleep. I told you I'm a fine sleeper. I kid you not, it's three in the morning. I leave my apartment. I go up four floors. I come up to one of the floors. There's a teenager sitting on a step. Like this. Strange. Sitting on one of the steps outside of one of the apartments. And I pass by him because I'm going up four four flights. My instincts told me that I shouldn't just go away, even though it's not my business. Sitting there. I stopped. I sat down. I said, good Shabbos. Is everything all right? Didn't answer. I put my hand subtly on his shoulder. How are you doing? You seem sad. Can I help you? Are you locked out? You need a place to sleep. You want to come to my house? We have an extra bed. Not answering. What's going on? Did something happen? I thought maybe, you know, some arguments, some relationship broke up a chves. Doesn't answer. As I'm sitting there in silence, he jumps up and he runs into one of the apartments. And perhaps the father in me told me to pursue him. And I ran after him. He closed the door. He slammed the door. But I put my foot in. And then I opened the door and I got in. When I got in, he ran into the kitchen. And he had a bunch of tablets there. And he started to throw the tablets into his mouth. And I knocked, I knocked them down on the floor, so most of them were gone. And he started to fight with me. We spoke about the mysterious man who wrestles you in the middle of the night. <laughs> and we got into a wrestling match. Now, I have maybe some virtues. I'm not a wrestler. I would like to be, but I'm not a wrestler. <laughs> I'm just not good at wrestling. Maybe I could be, but I'm not trained in it. But I had no choice. Somebody was wrestling me, so I was wrestling him. And we got into a fight, a fist fight. <laughs> it was not what I was expecting that Friday night. We got into a fight, and he was aggressive. I was aggressive. Thank God I was a little more aggressive, and maybe a little more powerful. And I finally pinned him, pinned him down, and he started to tell me, leave, I just wanted to take my life and end it. It was all planned. Those tablets, you ruined it. And I held him down and I spent the entire night there talking to him. First it was a fight. Then it was surrender. Then it was conversation. Around 8 in the morning, 
I would go teach a class Shabbos morning. I still teach a class Shabbos morning. I teach every Shabbos morning in Shul. Then it was in a yeshiva. I had to go teach. A lot of people would come. So I asked them to come down to my apartment. I woke up my wife. I shared with her what happened. I said, listen, I'll teach. I'm going to daven in an early minion, a fast minion. I'll come home right away to take care of him. Would you? Th- he's calm now. He's calm. He's good. I don't think he'll do anything. Just uh, for bring with him a little bit. She said, sure. I left. I was a little worried. I came back as soon as possible. I taught. I davened. I came back Shabbos morning. And we were there together a whole Shabbos. I was exhausted, but we were up. We had a nice day, a fine day. Right after Shabbos, I put him in contact with people, who, with a person who I thought could be very helpful for him, and he was. Today, years later, this young man is a beautiful person, successful, bright, delicious, geschmack, moral. He was always moral. <laughs> spiritually sensitive. He was always spiritually sensitive. That was the beginning of the challenge because he was so deep and sensitive. And really just a great neshama, a great soul. After Shabbos, when the drama was over, I turned to my wife and say, said, if this Shabbaton would have not been canceled, this boy would have not been here today. Because the Shabbaton was canceled, we were home. And we had to go out. We came home late. And I was up. And I decided to go up there to the office. And this is what happens. Now, the Shabbaton was not canceled for holy reasons. It was canceled for political petty reasons. But if I'm involved, that whole series of events was Bahashgacha Pratis. People are people, they make their decisions. But it was by divine providence. And this soul was saved. And from here, from that moment, I learned a tremendous lesson. People cancel events. Events get delayed. Events get pushed off. Flights are missed. Things happen. Then I took it personal. I was angry. I was upset. It's not fair. That moment, I learned there's a picture, a bigger picture you're never aware of. It's just a different picture. You think one thing is happening, something else is happening. It's not about a Shabbaton that was canceled. It's about a life that had to be saved. And I had the schus to save this person. And I'm forever grateful for that moment that I could literally be God's messenger to save this person's life. But it taught me so much because sometimes we look at an event, you know, and we think this person made this decision for petty reasons, for selfish reasons, and it affected me. And because of that, my life was affected. And now for years, I hold grudges and I harbor resentment and I'm upset and I'm angry. Relax, the Baal says, relax, relax. You see that little sciatica? You see that sciatic nerve? It was dislodged. It's very painful. Those of you who had sciatica know it's painful. You think it was random? It wasn't random. This is part of the journey. Why? We don't always know. Sometimes we know. What if I wouldn't have found out why the Shabbaton was canceled? I would live with mystery. No, I have to understand everything. People understand everything. If we understand a little bit, we're lucky. There, I had the privilege of seeing beyond the veil. Now, you could say it was good luck, good mazel. This guy had mazel. Maybe he didn't have mazel. You could be cynical about it. I can't tell you otherwise. You want to be cynical? Be cynical. It's a choice you have to make. You could be cynical about it. You could not be cynical about it. For me, it was extremely moving. 
Because it's like I saw how the pieces come together and the puzzle is a very different puzzle. And for that puzzle to happen, other puzzles had to be destroyed. So you see this little Gid HaNosh of Yaakov Avinu, it was dislodged. And for thousands of years, we look at an animal and we look for that space and we say, this detail is what it's about. It's not just Yaakov's life was saved, Jewish history was saved. It's the, the specific aspects of your life every specific aspect of your life, from leg, from your foot, till your head, and every nerve, every nerve, you know how many nerves there are? And every cell, every tendon, every bone, every sinew, every tissue, fiber, every aspect of your nervous system, every aspect of your nerve cells, every aspect of your neurons, every dimension of your life is orchestrated by infinite love. Embrace it. Don't fear it. Tune into it and celebrate it. Have a wonderful and beautiful week. I'll take some questions. Okay. Somebody, I guess, uh, is subtly suggesting I should announce that Sunday night we had a very interesting conversation about marriage. Why are so many marriages failing? And it's now posted on theyeshiva.net. You can go on, you'll see why are many marriages failing, a candid, candid conversation. There was incredible, vulnerable conversation. People came on and told stories and spoke about different challenges and was very meaningful. So those who are interested in the topic of relationships, whether you're married or not married, I think you will find it meaningful. How should I react if Moitzi Shemra was done on my son by my brother? My brother defamed my son. Is that also Bahashgacha Pratis? Well, the Balatanya writes that even when a person makes a bad choice to hurt me, the fact that I was hurt was not based on his choice. His choice ends after he chooses and tries to do what he wants to do. But what happens to me was ultimately God's choice. And he explains that's why getting angry and living in a world of anger is a form of subtle idolatry. Because it's like uh, getting angry at the door. You know, if I stub, somebody slams the door and my thumb is there, it once happened to me, it kills, it hurts. It's not the door's fault. <laughs> the door was just, you know, a lifeless instrument. So, David uh, Melech, uh, they asked him why he doesn't kill Shimi ben Geiru. Cursed him, Hashem Hashem told him to curse me. Hashem never told him to curse him. What David means, the Balatanya says, Igeris HaKadosh 25, is that Hashem ultimately wanted this should happen to David, even though Shimi should have been punished, because he made a bad choice. So what your brother did to your son is horrible. I don't know the details, so you know, I'm not in a position to get into the specifics and give any verdict here. But of course, Moitzi Shemra is forbidden. Lashon Hara is forbidden, even if it's true. And Moitzi Shemra, which is a lie, is absolutely forbidden. Defaming a person's character with terrible, 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 terrible consequences. But I think you have to remember that your brother does not decide the fate of your child. It's you and Hashem together, our partners. So this is a challenge facing you and your son. We have to work through it. We have to have a lot of courage. There is pain involved. We don't always know the reason for it. But let's not surrender to another person's bad choices. Now, according to halacha, according to law, there may be certain things that you can do in terms of your brother. For this, you should consult a competent Orthodox rabbi or expert in this particular area of how to handle this situation in terms of practicality. Practicalities. And of course, I'm very sorry. 
God not only knows what's going on down here, but he's engaged in supervising it as well. But that means that there's no free choice, or it's at least very restrictive. I can't wrap my brain around this. It seems that life is really more about a constant connection to God, so that we do what is right, because everything is godly, every minute of every day, and all time, and every moment in time. So free choice seems to be extremely limited, or doesn't does it even exist? Because if I'm choosing it, then it's not by divine providence. So anything that I'm choosing is not by divine providence. So if I made a mistake, that's not by divine providence. So you're saying, this person is asking, yeah, the osprey, the hawk, getting the fish is by divine providence because they don't have free choice. They're just following a genetic makeup designed by God. Granted. But what about me? I have free choice. And doesn't the Talmud say, everything is in the hands of heaven besides the fear of heaven. That means fear of heaven, I decide. So generally speaking, when we speak about Hashgacha Pratas, we're talking about all of the events in our life, all of the circumstances of our life, all of the encounters in our life. The fact that somebody canceled the Shabbaton was not my choice. I didn't make that choice. Right? It affected me. It didn't make my choice. That's Hashgacha Pratas. Now you're asking something else. If I make a moral choice or an immoral choice, is that also with Hashgacha Pratas? So this is a much more complicated question. It goes beyond our discussion. But very briefly, I'm going to say that according to many of the great mystics and great spiritual teachers, even that's Bahashgacha Pratis. Now you'll say this doesn't make sense. So this is a great sugya, a great discussion in Machshava, in Hashkafa, in Kabbalah, and in Chassidus. And if you'll go to the yeshiva.net, I have a series on free choice, and you'll see we have a few classes on it. So you can explore the topic more in detail over there. Great question. I listen to each word that you say. I try to apply it to my life. My phone died <laughs> with all the comments. One second. Rabbi Jacob, I listen to each word that you say and really try to apply it to my life. Speaking of Ajah Pratis, I have a son and I'm not proud of his choices. I have been his advocate all these years, even with his own father, but really his behavior hurts me. I have to work so hard on keeping on believing on continuing to believe in him. I blame myself only and my heart aches when I compare him to other children. Can you please give me chizuk? Thank you. You think this is Bahashgacha Pratis. It is tough and it is challenging for all of us dealing with this, and so many of us are. And I am very sorry for what you're going through. I don't know if blaming yourself at this point will do anybody good, not you and not your son and not the world. If you feel that you genuinely made mistakes one second I see the mic is going I see the mic is going to die any moment so I'm just going to change it and it's also there were a lot of distractions today I guess it's all part of the it is difficult and it is challenging but I don't think blaming yourself at this point is helpful the question is what would be the best thing for your child at this moment I think it's good to learn from mistakes and speak to people who can really support us and help us and figure out a way forward. I think the most important thing is never to give up on a child and to realize that a lot of the mistakes they make are often completely not coming from a place of clarity and strength, but from a place of brokenness and weakness. And we have to know sometimes they didn't even have control over it. And then it's certainly Bajgach. I don't know the details. You know, 
where, when do we say, you know, this person really made bad choices? Did they have the ability to make other choices or they didn't really? Sometimes, I don't know the situation, but sometimes it's really beyond their choices and then we need a lot of compassion and just be there for them and help them. To compare one child to another child is very unfair, even in one family, especially with other families. Every soul has its own journey and every soul has its own shlichus. It's just going to drive you crazy to compare him to other children. Yes, it's a natural human tendency. We get jealous, we get angry, we get upset. But as much as possible, try to meditate on this truth that every soul has its shlichus. And as parents, we just want to be there for our children, help each of them maximize their potentials, go through what they're going through with the utmost support. If they sometimes need discipline, then of course that's the appropriate thing. But you have to really know who your child is, what they're going through, what age they are, and what you're capable of at that point. You know, it's not like a five-year-old, a 15-year-old is not a five-year-old, and a 20-year-old is not a five-year-old. So we just have to be very sensitive to that. And Hashem should give you the strength to be able to make the right decisions, not from a place of blame or guilt or jealousy or anger, from a place of empowerment and clarity and emuna and betachem. Would it be prohibited as a result of Jacob's soul was wounded. Maybe the reason why the animal is forbidden because it's reflective of the animal soul in each of us. Very interesting insight. Thank you. We don't eat the sciatic nerve of mammals to appreciate Hashgacha Pratis. Help me understand this connection a little better, please. The Torah says, I'm not, we're not going to create a commemoration on the general story of the Jewish people surviving. We're going to create a commemoration that's focused on the details of how he survived, of what were the circumstances when he survived. We're not just creating a ritual about the general experience. Yaakov was alive, let's celebrate. No, we're going to tune in to the exact event, what happened. The man tried to kill him, he was unsuccessful, and therefore he focused on the sciatic nerve of Yaakov Avinu in his hip, the socket of the hip. And that's where he was dislodged, that's where there was a wound, and that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to tune into that story to remember the eternal providence of the Jewish people. One second, why don't we talk about the eternal providence of the Jewish people, over the Jewish people, because the providence over the Jewish people and every individual is not just about a general hashgacha klolis, a general providence. It's also about what's happening in your sciatica. What's happening in your nerve system. What's happening in every single nerve. What's happening in your leg. It's physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's the hashgach of every aspect of your life and of my life, every one of our journeys, every one of our pains, every one of our experiences. Every scar, every wound, every experience is part of my journey towards wholesomeness with the infinite. Why this particular sinew? Why this particular nerve, you're asking? Well, you have to ask the man who attacked Yaakov, why did he decide to go for there? So, that also was, right, that also, that, that's the point. For whatever reason, he decided to go there. That's what we're going to focus on. That is exactly what we're going to focus on. And there are different explanations, right? The Zohar says that that's the place that's associated with, uh, with intimacy and with uh, intimate desires. And that's often where people can uh, lose their depth and humanness and powerful uh, inner spiritual vigor because the temptation can be so powerful, you can get lost in the external temptation and not remember who you are. And that's what he wanted to focus on. That's where people are often very weak and they lose the spiritual plot. That's one explanation. Another explanation is it's connected to the intimate, procreative uh, powers of a person representing the descendants of Yaakov Avinu. And there are other explanations why he attacked them over there.
What about in our time? We're not, we don't have such open miracles, but Hashem still makes miracles through means that look normal. Yeah. And the Baal Shem Tev once said that nature is a miracle. It's just miracles that are reoccurring. 100%. And there are some revealed miracles as well. I still don't understand. So why don't we eat the Gid Hanasha? Why does it have to be reflected in the prohibition of eating it? Besides the fact that Jews, a lot of Jews like to eat, is there a deep Kabbalah in this? There are other ex- other insights and other mystical explanations in this. But here we're focusing on one aspect. And that is by when we are eating an animal, there is a halacha to poke out, to take out that part and not eat it. And the reason for that is one reason. To focus on this aspect of the story of Yaakov Avinu. Why are we focusing on this aspect of the story? Why don't we focus on the general story that he was saved? Yes, he happened to be wounded there. The metaphor I gave, somebody was saved from an attack and he happened to get a cut in his foot. That's not the story. Nonetheless, the point is, that is what the mitzvah is teaching us. That Hashem's relationship with each and every one of us is not only a general relationship. Hashem will decide maybe how long you live, who you'll marry, uh, will you have a successful life or, God forbid, a challenging life. That's not the idea. The idea is every single nuance of my life is orchestrated by divine providence. You said last week in a class that children or adults who are lacking love will look for it by looking for attention. How does the rabbi who is giving lectures for thousands of people almost on a daily basis and you get so many compliments and you get a lot of attention all day, how do you stay in tune with your true self and you don't get caught up in the validation and the accolades and the praise to become dependent on the constant compliments and attention that people give you? (laughs) Well... You want me to hook you up with my therapist? (laughs) You want to hear my life story now? I'll just say very briefly, this is a struggle that we all have, including myself. And uh, it's a challenge that I think many of us have to work on, and I also have to work on. Yes, compliments feel good, validation feels geschmack. Accolades are always nicer to receive than criticism. And... uh, I do have the, the privilege or the schos or the challenge of, of getting some compliments. I also get criticism. I also get criticism. So I guess I should be thankful for that. But it's really, it's really, it's a, it's daily work. Daily work for some people, it's probably easier than others, depending on their childhood and their self-image in general. But this is something I have to be aware of. You have to be aware of. We all have to be aware of. And you know what? We also can't sit and judge ourselves all day. In other words, if I give a fantastic speech and I get a lot of compliments, right? Am I supposed to now feel guilty that I feel good about the compliments? Is that going to help me? You just have to have it. You have to have perspective. You know what happens if I don't get compliments? Do I get into, go into a depression for a month? Let's say I gave a speech and it failed. It failed. It, it did not work. The crowd was sleeping, they weren't interested, and it has happened. So what happens now? Does it feel good? It doesn't feel good. But I and we have to have perspective and say, okay, is this life-threatening? Maybe psychologically it could be life-threatening, but it's such good awareness. If I feel that it's, it's, it's destroying me, I have to ask myself tough questions. And that is, what is this? 
Is your entire image based on the other person liking your speech and what happens if they don't? So I don't think we should be critical of every time we feel good or we feel bad, but it's it's something to point us to a deeper truth. Yes, we all feel good, or many of us feel good when we get compliments. I can't say everybody. Some people probably doesn't matter much. But some people, it means a lot. And criticism hurts us. And I'm one of those people. And then I have to look at it and ask myself, you know, some real questions. Is it maybe too much? What can I learn from this? What is this telling me about myself? Maybe there's something to work on here. But don't be critical about the emotions because they're natural human emotions. You know what? Maybe you didn't have love and you do need attention. And this attention is filling a void. Have compassion for that. And the more you have compassion for it, the more you can get out of it. Because when you have compassion for it, you can actually open up and realize where it's coming from. Instead of criticizing and saying, I'm such a sick, traumatized person. I need attention. And then you know what happens? You need more attention because you're more traumatized. Instead of, instead of that, you have compassion and say, yeah, this is who I am. I am in a weak place and I need attention. And then maybe I can ask myself, why do I need so much attention? I can open up the wound. I could look at it. And then I could say, and maybe there's an alternative. You know, maybe I could learn to really appreciate a deeper self. And even though the compliments will still feel good, but they won't be so vital and so essential. Most importantly, compliments and criticism are here to teach us what we can do better next time, where we can fix things and what people need and what people appreciate. So in that sense, it's very valuable. Feedback is incredibly valuable. That's why I love getting feedback. Even the healthiest person in the world, you need feedback to know, you know, maybe this was inappropriate, maybe this can be better. Than when the feedback becomes the essential uh, ingredient in determining self-worth, then we have a challenge. And this is something I work on, and I think many of us have to work on. Thank you for asking. That was a good question. This was an incredible class, an incredible story. There are times in life that we are lucky enough to see the big picture that God intended. The challenge is remembering this clarity we experience during those moments and to live this knowledge in the instances when we can't see it. When we can rise to the occasion, the inner peace one can experience is immeasurable. This is a message from South Africa, I believe, right? Thank you. When we can rise to the occasion, the inner peace one can experience is immeasurable. In other words, to live this knowledge and breathe it, even in instances when we don't feel this presence. Beautiful. Wow, Rabbi, you're truly an inspiration. Such hashgacha, such hashgacha that you're listening to the class. God runs the world. I have experienced the same thing in my life. God wants you to go through what you need to for your own good. Ba'asher husham. God put you in the right place at the right time. And therefore, you can always celebrate that. That's beautiful. Yes, 100%. Next question. When I get up in the morning and I'm having health issues, is it all essential to my purpose and my functioning in the cosmos? Does this include health issues? Does it include psychological issues? I think it includes all issues. It includes every aspect of our lives. It includes the dating process and courtship. It includes looking and finding a, for a sp- looking for a spouse and finding a spouse. It includes looking for a job and finding a job. It includes my health, my emotional, my physical, my spiritual health. And sometimes the divine providence is challenging us. It's summoning us to do work. Maybe I have to call a doctor. Maybe I have to go to a nutritionist. Maybe I need to take a walk every day. Maybe I need to exercise. Maybe I have to change my diet. Maybe this is an alarm clock to wake me up to certain realities. Maybe i got to change the trajectory of my life. Maybe I have to move. Maybe I need different ear. Maybe I need a different community. Maybe I need different friends or different relationships. Maybe I need to start learning more. Maybe I need to learn how to pray. Maybe 
I need to learn to start sharing, whatever it is. Sometimes it's a very powerful wake-up call to be able to live out our purpose and uh, and fulfill our mission in the world. Sometimes it's a call maybe to change my attitude. So yes, it's, it's all part of it, and it's not always rosy. Not, this, this doesn't mean everything is rosy and everything is as beautiful and perfect. It's not even rosy to watch the hawk snatching the fish out of the water. There's a certain element, I mean, it's fascinating, but there's a certain element. You ever, ever went to the jungle and saw, you know, saw the predators attack the prey? It's not comfortable to watch. We do know it's part of a very intricate ecosystem, and if everything would remain intact, the world, our planet wouldn't be able to function, right? The vegetation will uh, will cease to be. So there is a very delicate balance of... Uh, extremely delicate balance of uh, of within nature, and that's all Bahashgacha Pratas. There's the story about, you know, the one who wanted to get rid of all the cat, the cats, and when he was left with all the mice, which ate up everything, and he realized that, you know, you have to know what to interfere with and what not to interfere with. This is divine providence that I heard this talk, very interesting talk, especially the spiritual input on the Torah. Glad to have had the chance to join you. Yeah, it's by divine providence when you come to a class, especially if it's the first time you're here. Anytime you're here, it's by divine providence. It's divine providence that we're here learning together, talking together, and growing together. I wish you all a wonderful week and uh, a inspiring week. Once again, tomorrow morning, 730 we will continue our class about the angels that Yaakov sent, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Wednesday night, 9.30, a Zoom with Panama, achieving happiness during these crazy times. That will be on the yeshiva.net. Thursday morning, 7.30 a.m. again. Saturday night, Mitzay Shabbos, 8 o'clock p.m., Yutas Kislev, Fabreng, and Kumzitz, in the tent, 24 Shea Road, stream live on the yeshiva.net. Everybody is in invited. If somebody wants to email me, I'm Rabbi Waiwai at theyeshiva.net. We're preparing now, working on our Hanukkah clips. We do our eight little short, powerful Hanukkah clips that have gone viral over the years. We put in a lot of money into them to produce them in the highest quality and highest caliber and allow them to go and spread the light to the world, Jews and non-Jews. If anybody would like to uh, sponsor one of those clips in memory of a loved one or in honor of a loved one or any other cause, please email me, rabbiyy at theyeshiva.net. And generally, if you would like to sponsor any class or help us in our work and spreading the depth and the majesty and the love of Torah, please feel free to join us. We always need partners. And may God bless all of you and your loved ones. May you have a week of bracha and atzlacha and be able to see the Ashgacha Pratis in every moment and every experience of your life. I send all of you my deepest blessings. Chazak. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.